okay? When I say the word obedience, how many of you have a negative reaction inside? Obedience. Like, it's, does it make you feel like you're, you know, maybe back in school and, like, have to do things you don't want to do? And if you don't, you're going to be in trouble. You know, if that's our concept of obedience, then is it any wonder that people doubt the love of God? Because how many people in here have maybe been taught through your life, you better obey God or he's going to get you. And it's, it's unfortunate because, yes, we've done a whole series on it. So, yes, God has wrath and God has anger. And there is a line that he's going to say, okay, that's enough. No more disobedience. And I'm going to thump you because you won't listen. But what is the purpose of obeying God? Is it just because God wants to prove that he's stronger than us and he can force us to do things because he's more powerful than us? You know, the great thing is, is when God tells us to do something, he doesn't come back with that answer that we all loved as children. What is that? Because I said so. You see, the scriptures give us all the reasons why we should obey God. And what what are those reasons? Well, his paths are the paths of life. God is for us, not against us. That his that he guards the paths of the righteous, so his, his protection is is hardwired and encoded into the path of righteousness, so that if we obey him, we are protected. You know, by the end of, of, of understanding, you know, you read through all of scripture, you come to understand that obedience is for our benefit. It's always for our benefit. God doesn't need us. If I disobey God, I'm not going to stop anything that God wanted to do, like nothing. If I tell God no as something that I, you know, hey, do this, and I tell him no, he'll just find someone else who will, and I'm the one who missed out on that blessing. God's will will continue forward. And so anybody in here who has that weight on their shoulder right now, you can take that off. Okay, God's kingdom is not dependent on you. And that's a weight you don't need to carry. So when God calls us to obedience, we've got to rewire our thinking. This isn't a bad thing. Now, will God call us to do hard things? Oh, absolutely. Will he call us to do scary things? Absolutely. Will he call us to do crazy things sometimes? Absolutely. Especially by worldly standards. You're going to look at it and God's going to be, you know, people are like, God told you to do what? But in the end, we can all say anyone who, who genuinely takes that step of obedience, knowing 100% this is what God wants, Nobody ever looks back and says, I wish I hadn't done that. What is it we say that about? Disobedience. Now, we can all raise our hand on that one, right? Look back and say, you know what? I knew I was sinning. I knew it was wrong. I did it anyway, and I wish I hadn't. We can all raise our hands there. But nobody will ever genuinely obey God and look back and say, that wasn't worth it. 
That was not a good thing in my life. It didn't leave. You'll look back and say, it wore me out. It was hard. It brought me to the end of myself. It drove me to my knees in dependence on God. But when it was all said and done, I'm glad it happened. Because God worked. And so this morning, we're going to look at an example of obedience and how we think about obedience, how we think about sin and righteousness in John chapter 9, at Jesus, who is Lord of the obedient. Now, in John 9, we get a story of a man who was born blind, and Jesus heals him. Now, keeping with our theme, of course, what is being amplified in this sign? What's being amplified is that Jesus, of course, is Lord over all creation, that he is, in fact, Emmanuel, God with us. He is God in the flesh, the Word became flesh and dwelt with men, and we beheld His glory. And so He is putting on display the works of the Father that He was sent to do, and He heals someone for which there should be absolutely no medical recourse. A man born blind means he's born with a dysfunction in his body that it was there from the beginning born this way. And so we're going to pick up John chapter 9. Now, this story leads to a much larger story that we're not going to cover this week. So we're just going to look at the healing in verses 1 through 7. So it says, as he passed by, that's Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing pretty amazing story. Seems really simple in the telling, you know, hey, he healed this guy, born from, you know. But we got to start because there's a philosophical question at the beginning of this that prompts the whole thing. And it reveals foundations that are faulty. It reveals thinking that is faulty that will keep people And this is why I asked about your your thoughts on obedience at the beginning, because sometimes if we have the wrong mindset, we won't even be open to the work of God. It's not that we're opposed to it. It's that it's an option that we don't even think exists, because we love as human beings to create dichotomies, right? It's this or this. And we, we are desperate so many times to force it into one category or the other. Either or. It's got to be this or this. And and so many times what happens is the the Bible comes along and it's like, hey, there's this side, there's this side. And the Bible cuts across both of them and says, and here's the truth. (laughs) Here's the truth. And it's completely different than these. It may include elements of both, but it cuts across both of them and says, there's a third way here that you haven't even thought about. And that's what happens here. You see, they walk up and they see this man who's blind from birth. And the disciples, they're like, this is one of those curious moments that they're like, finally, we can solve this. This is one of those 
philosophical answers, that theological arguments of the day that could not get resolved. And it was the belief that if a person was born with a deformity, it was the result of either the parent's sin or a sin of the individual in the womb. Now, we'll go to some crazy places trying to explain things to force our dichotomy, right? <laughs> like, Because it doesn't make any sense. And yet, this was an argument that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, all of the, the priests, they all had this argument. But what's funny is what did they all agree on? That whatever has happened, this person deserved it. It is the result of sin, and they absolutely deserve what happened to them, and so therefore we need not feel sorry for them. But what we really want to figure out is who do we judge? Who do we point the finger at and say this was their fault? Is it the person or is it his parents? And so the disciples ask this question. They're finally like, hey, we can solve this one. Jesus, who sinned? Now, this is a legitimate truth-seeking question from them, and you can almost feel Jesus' repulsion at the question itself. You see, the question reveals what they believe. And in Jesus' time, a rabbi knew that one of his students, one of his disciples, had matured in his understanding of the world based on the questions they asked. It wasn't whether you can get the answer right. They all could get the answer right. They had the entire Old Testament memorized. They could regurgitate facts like nothing. So they looked for who's interacting. How are they interacting with this truth? And they looked at the level of questions that were being asked. And if we're observant in our own lives, we can find out what we believe by the questions we ask. What is it we're searching for? What is it that we want? This was a common question in the day. What does the question reveal? It reveals then that these people believed that God worked on a wage system with people. You get what you deserve. Now, that doesn't sound a whole lot different from the day, right? You see, if God works on a wage system, then that means some people are more righteous than others. That means some people absolutely deserve what happens to them, and they, they don't need to be pitied, and they don't need compassion because God doesn't like them. And if God doesn't like them, I don't have to like them. And if we have this kind of thinking, then it leads to legalism, the idea of earned righteousness, and it was rooted deeply in their culture at the time so that nobody actually questioned it. They saw the world in this either or, and that's it. And so when Jesus came along teaching grace, teaching faith, it didn't make sense to anybody because they're like, I can't put this in either category. There are elements of it. I, can, I see he's telling me to obey God, but at the same time, he's saying God forgives and God's love. And which one is it, Jesus? And Jesus says, yes, it's that third way that cuts across all of it. I'm teaching you something new. And so in their culture, with the entire rabbi system, with the Pharisees, with everything in this culture, it was always one big competition of self-righteous and judgment. Who can be more righteous? Who can be better? Now tell me that's not human nature. We love comparing ourselves with each other. We love 
looking down on others or elevating some people to places they don't belong. We love doing it. Why? Because we're wired to worship, and if we aren't worshiping God, we're going to worship something. Even if it's worship of self, which is where then we look at ourselves and we place people beneath beneath us. And so when a person or a people become legalistic, the first thing they will start doing is comparing and grading righteousness. This question reveals that. Who sinned? Who's responsible for this? I mean, it's a foregone conclusion to them that sin caused this, that this person deserves it. They just want to know who. You see, the question reveals their belief. And so this happens because legalism leaves no room. Listen to this. It leaves no room for the mystery of grace. It leaves no room for the love of God. Legalism is based on how good I can be. And if I pass, God likes me. And if I fail, God doesn't like me. And you know what? That is nowhere in Scripture. That is nowhere in Scripture. And so it leaves no room for God to work. It's a fixed system where everything's already in place. And if, and if you do well in life, then that must mean you're a good person and God loves you and he's rewarding you. And if you're struggling in life, it must mean something is wrong and you deserve it and you need to just fix your life and then everything will be better. And you know who else had this mindset? Job's friends. Job loses everything he has in his life except for his wife. And then she says, hey, why don't you just curse God and die? So she's not a support during that time. And then his friends show up, and they're like, Job, if you just confess what you did, I'm sure this would work out. And Job's like, I'll conf- if you tell me what I did, I'll confess it. And they're like, no, you see, you're just hiding it now. We know God is just, and so if, if all this happened, it happened for a reason. You must have sinned. Just confess your sin. And Job's like, I'll, I'll confess it if you can tell me. I'm telling you, I didn't do anything. You see, and they just pound away at him over and over through the, the entire book of Job until one other friend finally speaks up. He's the young guy, and he's like, hey, you're all wrong. Job, quit whining. You're not a victim here. God is sovereign. And you three, shh, stop. See, when we, in, when we get this kind of legalism, we place ourselves as judge. And it's a position we are unqualified to fill. We don't know in the cosmic scale what's going on. We don't know what God is doing at any moment and how he's working. We can't see all of that. And when we place ourselves as judge over other people, we are assuming a knowledge that we don't have. And so listen to what Proverbs 27 says on this. It says, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. Now, how is that destructive towards legalism? Right there, let another praise you, not your own lips. He's saying, hey, don't think so highly of yourself. Now, it doesn't say trash yourself either. What does it say? It says live in the moment. Don't boast about tomorrow. Don't brag about how awesome you think are going or whatever. You don't know what's coming tomorrow. Just live now, be humble, and do what's right. 
and let God work these things out. Because at its core, legalism or works-based righteousness is a way for a person to feel superior to another. And in its worst forms, it shows itself in the heartless judgment displayed by the disciples in their question. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They just assume something, he deserves it. Now, that really is a huge, think of the the implications of the judgment that they have leveled. They are declaring God's justice on this person, and they just want to know where did it come from. And judging people like that will never go well for us. Now, it doesn't say we're not to make any judgment ever, but to assume the posture that I know enough to claim God is completely judging a person and that their sin, that they deserve whatever calamity in their life is because God is judging them, that's taking a leap that we just can't make, that we can't do. Maybe God is just humbling somebody. You ever been humbled? You know, did you have some egregious sin before that you needed to be punished? Or did God just say, you know what, I'm just going to humble you. I I just need to teach you to be more dependent on me. So I'm going to bring you low for a time so that you learn to listen to me better. You see, at that moment, it's not a punishment from God. In fact, it's a blessing from God, as weird as it sounds, because he's drawing you nearer to him. And so listen to Peter who I think could speak very well on this matter. In 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7, it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, what's the key there? Humble yourselves. He says at the proper time, God will lift you up. God will lift you up. Legalism says I'm going to lift myself up. Faithfulness says I'm going to let God lift me up at the right time. Which brings us back to what was happening with this blind man. Because they ask him, who sinned, him or his parents? And he says, nobody sinned. It's so the works of God might be displayed in his life. Think of that. It's so the works of God will be displayed in his life. What is that about the proper time? This man's time had come. Was this a difficult life? Yeah. Could we look at it and say, that seems a little harsh and unfair. He was born blind. Like this guy had to really endure in life for a time. Yeah. I I never said that this was going to be easy, and I didn't say it was going to be fair. And I, I said, God will ask us to do hard things. He will ask us to do things that don't make any sense. He will act in ways that sometimes we're going to look at it and say, I don't understand at all, nor do I even like it at all. If I had my way, it would be completely different right now. And God says, yeah, but you don't. I'm in charge. And he's perfect. His ways are perfect. In the end, everything will work out the way it's supposed to. And when I say supposed to, I mean the way God wants it to. And we have to trust him. Because humility is essential to godly living. See, one way that pride sneaks in is found in this passage. It sneaks in by looking for what is wrong first. It's called fault finding. It is living in such a way that we constantly look for what is wrong instead of being thankful for what is right. 
And it's, listen, if there was a, a sin that is prevalent in our society today, this is it. The, the, the internet has just brought out the ugly side of humanity. And we have learned to just, like a pack of rabid wolves, jump on anything we don't like and just focus on it and just stay there. And when we live like this, it blinds us to what is and steals our hope. All we, we train ourselves to only see the bad. And we get so focused on being negative, we can't see the good right in front of us. And you want to know the proof to this? Look at Adam and Eve. They became so focused on seeing fault and not having the knowledge of good and evil that they failed to see the gift of life that was available to them in the same place. And guess what? They weren't lacking anything. God had given them everything they needed and even invited them to a larger existence with the tree of life. He gave it to them and it's like, you're free to eat of any tree in the garden, which included the tree of life. He's like, just my promise is here. Enter into it. But the serpent deceived them and all they could do was focus on, I'm missing something. There is this knowledge of good and evil. I want it. And they were willing to sacrifice their lives to have something that they didn't need. To have something that would destroy them. And so this is a fault-finding mindset. And we inherited it from Adam and Eve. We love to focus on what's wrong. And so the disciples, they had seen Jesus heal many times. And at this point, they didn't even consider that there might be more to the story. They see this man born blind and they don't say, hey, Jesus, you going to heal this guy? Or, you know, is there something to story? They're just like, hey, who sinned? That this guy deserves what he's facing. And so Jesus corrects them and he breaks them out of that way of thinking. And we've got to be prepared for this because God's going to do this to us over and over in life that we get this, this either or thinking and God says, nope, there really is a third way and it's not anything you've even thought about yet and it's going to radically alter the way you think. Now, how many of us like changing our mind? We're great fans of it, right? We just go into every day and it's like, you know what, where can I think differently and completely change the foundation of the way I think? No, we will guard it, right? Like we'll guard it ferociously. We get comfortable with the way we think and we want to stay there and we hold on to it and we fight against it. And God comes along and says, hey, you need to change. And what is, he has to do things to get our attention with it. And so Jesus corrects them. He says, it's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus showed a third way of thinking and that the situation is there so God can be glorified and the works of God displayed through this man. There was a bigger picture at work. And when we learn to adopt the eternal perspective, it changes everything. When I say everything, I mean everything. It changes the way we look at ourselves. It changes the way we look at others. It changes everything. Instead of it being someone's fault, which allows us to place blame and judgment, it becomes an opportunity for God's power to shine. Now, if we lived our lives thinking that way, how does that change our daily experience? Instead of fault finding, it's opportunity finding. 
And I'm not talking about this weird, you know, power positive thinking kind of stuff. I'm, I'm not, I'm talking literally like, you know what? Maybe this thing is happening in life, not because you did something wrong, but because you did something right. And you're moving to a new level with God. You're moving to a deeper knowledge of God. And yeah, it hurts right now, but man, God can do something amazing with pain. Don't waste it. And so what we've got to start asking is whose work am I accomplishing in life? See, if it's fault finding, whose work am I accomplishing? Whose work am I really accomplishing? The enemy's. Because the enemy wants us to think God has shorted us. The enemy wants us to believe that God has not given us life. The enemy wants us divided from each other. The enemy wants us miserable and depressed and separated from God. And so we've got to ask, whose work am I accomplishing with anything that we do? Because in truth, the answers to this question are, are limited. There are only three answers. We are accomplishing our work, the enemy's work, or God's work. And most of the time, two of those are not good. Our work and the enemy's work are not focused on God. And so it's easy for us to ask that question at any point in life, whose work am I accomplishing? Am I doing this for me? Am I doing it because the world or, or, or the, the enemy? Am I feeding into something that's negative? Or am I actually accomplishing God's work with this? And it will clarify a lot of things very quick, quickly. Or we could simplify it further if you want. If three is too many, we can say we're either serving ourselves or God. Because Satan will manipulate us and we'll think it's, you know, not for us, but it will be in the end. And so Jesus shows us what it meant to serve God in this situation. And that's where he says, no, it's not that anybody sinned. And in verse 4, he says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. See, Jesus makes clear once again that his work is the Father's work. Jesus is neither serving himself nor the world. He is serving the Father. His entire life on earth was spent serving and glorifying the Father. And Jesus knew his time was limited and made the most of every opportunity. I mean, isn't it amazing that Jesus' ministry only lasted three years? Three years. And yet here we are today, 2,000 years later, still analyzing and learning and growing from what one man did over a three-year period. And so Jesus knew his time was limited, and the very small window of three years that Jesus walked the earth would change all of world history. And the importance of his work is highlighted in his statement, I am the light of the world. It says, as long as I'm here, I am the light of the world. What he's saying to that is he brought something absolutely unique. You are not going to find God, see God, experience God anywhere else other than Jesus during his time on earth. Physically, that was it. He was the beacon of all hope and light that God was giving to the world during that time. Now, has that changed? No, he just changed in the way it works. When Jesus was on earth, it was him physically in his presence. How does it work now? Well, he sent his spirit into the world and he works through his church, but it's still centered on Jesus. So if you want hope, what do you do? 
look to Jesus. If you want life, look to Jesus. See, Jesus wasn't just performing a miracle. He was giving the world a sign that he was the epicenter of all of God's activity on earth in that moment. And he says, we got to work the works of him who sent me while it's still day. There's coming a time no one's going to be able to work. You know what that time was? It was the time between his crucifixion and the day of Pentecost. Nobody could do anything. Holy Spirit wasn't there. Jesus wasn't there. Guess what? Nobody could work. Nobody could do anything that, that would have meant anything in, of, of an eternal perspective. Now, that changed on the day of Pentecost. What happened? Spirit comes. Boom. 3,000 people get saved by the preaching of Peter on the day of Pentecost. You see, the work continues, and it went through the church. So he is the light that shines in darkness, Jesus himself. It's not a philosophy that Jesus espoused or taught. It's not a greater truth that he represented. It's not even a system of belief, but that he himself was the light that was doing the work of God. The very person of Jesus Christ was the light. And so, when we ask, whose work am I accomplishing? We have to ask, am I working for God, for myself, or for the world? One answer leads us to life. The others lead us to death. One requires faith and allows us to see the good things God is offering and live in the life he gives, while the others lead us to more darkness, more confusion, and ultimately death. Paul puts it this way, Galatians 5, 16 and 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. We're serving God or we're not. There is no middle ground here. Okay, fence sitting. Understand, there's one use for the fence, and that's firewood. That's it. That's it. There's no other use for the fence. And so Paul is telling us, he says, look, you're either serving the Spirit of God or the flesh. And if you serve the Spirit, you'll starve the flesh because they're opposed. They are diametrically opposed to each other. And what happens is when we get into this worldly thinking of who sinned, who, with this, we're locking ourselves in over here to fleshly thinking. And then we fight with each other over it, and guess what? We're fighting for position on a sinking ship. And we're arguing about whose ship is better when the whole thing's going down. And he says, hey, there's a whole other way to do this where I'm giving you life, where you have a lifeboat and you're going to live. Follow me. And so it's only in submission and obedience to the Spirit of God revealed in the gospel and in the Scripture through faith in Jesus that we can find life, which brings us back to our story. We've got to have all that in mind, okay, to get to the climax of this story. And what is that? Obey so that you may see. See, Jesus had to break their way of thinking so that they could understand this sign. They know Jesus can perform miracles, so they're, they're kind of bored with that by now because that's what we do as humans, right? We're excited for a moment, and then the excitement fades. We want the next exciting thing. So Jesus has to teach them. He has to break their way of thinking and say, look, this isn't about what you think it's about. This legalism is gone. Let's think about this in a different way. But obedience does come into the picture. If we want life, we must obey God. 
If we want vision, we must obey God. There is no other way. Obedience is absolutely necessary. And I'm not saying legalistic obedience where we get to say, I obeyed and you didn't. No, it's it's how we engage the power of God. It's the only way the power of God is active in our lives is if we're obeying him. Okay, it's like God lays out the table and says, hey, sit down and eat because you're hungry. Well, I know I'm hungry, but I don't want to eat that. It's the only food that there is. Well, I'll find something else. And it's like God says, there is, no, there is nothing else. Now, I've given you food. Sit down and eat. Now, do we enjoy the blessing by not sitting down to eat? No, we can even talk about the goodness of the food. We can talk about the graciousness of God and offering the food. We can, but where does it become effective? When we actually sit down to the table and feed. That's what obedience is. It is learning to feed on the power of God in our lives. And so, after he had said this, verse 6, it says, Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. You see, Jesus shows us, John shows us, sorry, that what Jesus has said leads directly to the miracle he performs now. The work of God is now going to be displayed. But unlike other miracles, there's an added step to this one, and it's an important one. Jesus makes mud with saliva and puts it on the man's eyes. Now, it was believed then because this is the building of faith in this man. This man has probably heard this discussion. It's probably a discussion he's heard a thousand times in his life that he's sick of hearing. I mean, how would you, you know, if, if, if we were born blind and people came up and just talked like you weren't there and they're like, yeah, this guy, you know, how do you think he sinned in the womb? I can hear you. And he, he was probably just tired and he was being told his whole life, God's mad at you. You got what you deserved. And then here he hears again, who do you think sinned? And he's probably sitting there thinking, man. And then Jesus says, he didn't sin. Whoa, that got my attention. It's not that this man sinned, nor his parents. He's like, okay, I'm listening. Keep talking. And then it was believed at the time that saliva had medical, medicinal purposes. And so when he spits on the ground and makes mud and rubs it on his eyes, he is creating a faith in this man that, yes, something is happening here, and he's feeding his faith. Something is happening here that that will involve my sight, that's involving my eyes, This is different. So he's heard the discussion, and he's felt the touch of Jesus on his eyes, and yet he's not healed yet. What does he have to do? He says, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. Now, does it lost on anybody that he just told the blind man to go find his way to the pool by himself? He doesn't help him. He doesn't send one of his disciples with him to take him there. He just tells him to do it. And guess what? The blind man finds his way there. He doesn't let anything stay in his his way. He goes. But he leaves the man to decide for himself whether he believes what Jesus just said. And guess what? It was his obedience that empowered the miracle. If he doesn't obey... He doesn't get healed. 
He'd been touched by Jesus. He had heard the words of Jesus, all of that. But he, if he doesn't obey and fight his way to the pool of Siloam, which he's blind, he knew how to get around. He'd been born blind, been doing it his whole life. But he still had to obey. And we got to learn to look at this struggle because he leaves the man to struggle with the moment himself. He does not make this any easier on him at this point. He's heard the discussion. He's felt him rub mud on his eyes. And then he tells him, go wash. And it's now up to him to decide what to do with it. Jesus doesn't beg him to do it. He doesn't explain to him, hey, it's really in your best interest to go to the pool. He doesn't, he doesn't do any of that. He just tells him, go wash it off in the pool of Siloam. And he does it. You see, he hears some good news that the work of God is to be displayed in him. When he feels Jesus rub mud on his eyes and tell him to go wash, he's like, yeah, there's something up here, and I believe it, and I'm going to act on it. And he enters into a new life because of it. The man's obedience brought about a miracle in his life. His faith preceded his obedience, but his faith pushed him to obedience. And if your faith is not pushing you to obey God, it's not faith. It's superstition. We can intellectually agree with God and yet not obey him. It's not faith. Like I said, we can see the table that God has prepared for us and say, yes, that is an abundant spread. God is gracious. He has given us food. And if I refuse to eat it, I don't benefit from it. And obedience is us showing up to the table with God saying, God, I believe you and I will accept what you give me. Some people in this world, Christians, are missing out on their miracle simply because they want the miracle before the obedience. God, if you'll do this, then I'll obey. And he says, that's not how it works. You obey me and I will be active in your life. Now, I'm not going to do what you tell me because God doesn't work that way. But obedience has to come first. Obedience has to be an active part of our faith. James puts it this way in James 1, 22 and 25. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He learns the truth. He sees the truth. He recognizes the truth. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If we're just sitting back waiting for God to bless us, saying, yes, God, I believe all the promises. I believe your promises. Now make them active in my life. God's going to say, do this, and you will experience my power. And it's not God saying, earn it. He's saying, this is where my power is available. This is where it is. Walk down the path, and hardwired into the path is my power. But if you don't take the steps, you don't get it. It's not going to work. The power of faith is found in the doing. Yes, we must believe first, and we believe first by hearing the truth, just as this man did, but that belief is ineffective. It doesn't lead us to action. It is acting on that belief that brings power. 
just like this man. He heard the truth that the work of God was going to be displayed in his life, but if he didn't act on that belief and go to the pool of Siloam, he doesn't get healed. So I want to ask, what actions in your life show your faith in the word of Jesus, in the power of Jesus, in the lordship of Jesus? And I don't say that in in any kind of guilting or or shaming fashion or, or judgmental. We all have to ask, whose work am I accomplishing? Because I have to obey that I may see. And if I want to see the truth, I got to engage the truth. I got to walk in the truth. And I got to keep seeking it day after day after day and walking with him and obeying. And when God asks us to do something crazy, we're like, okay, I, I think I'm in the path because God's totally brought me to the end of myself. He's wanting me to do something that I don't know that I can do. That's when we know God is working. So I want to close with this. John 14, 23 and 24, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. And what is he saying? He's saying, walk with God and God will be with you. This isn't This is not the angry parent that says, because I said so, and if you don't, you're in trouble. What is he saying? He's saying, that is how you access my love, my grace, my power, my presence. Just walk with me. Give me your heart and your obedience. Obey from the heart, and I will be with you. I will be with you through all of it. And then he says, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. The greatest way we can judge our own faith is what level of obedience does it lead us to? Now, grace covers where we're imperfect. And I'm not saying none of us has a perfect faith, but that's the point of faith. It doesn't have to be perfect to be active. Faith can grow just like anything else. Faith can, can get stronger just like anything else. A weak faith. Jesus said, you know, I, I will not, you know, bruised reed, he will not destroy. Whatever flicker, little ember of faith you have in your life, God can bring it to life. But it only happens when we walk actively with him. It only happens through obedience. But we've got to change our mindset. Instead of asking What's going to happen if I don't obey? Start asking, what could happen when I obey? See, if we're afraid of God, then we'll just try to do just enough to not get in trouble. If we love God, as Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my word. If we love him, we will look for opportunities to enter into his word because that's where we're going to find him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today. And God, I just thank you for everyone here. And God, I pray that you increase our faith, our opportunities to obey you, God, that we would look for them, that we would actively strive for holiness, for obedience. God, that we wouldn't see obedience as something we have to do, but we would see it as the path of life, as the opportunities for your work to be displayed. God, that we would seek that third way, 
the way of your love, the way of your grace. God, open our minds and our hearts and our spirits to the truth, the truth of your love, your grace, your presence. The truth that your son died for us on the cross and that all we have to do is, is put our faith in him to be saved. God, empower our lives to be your representatives in life. Where there's healing that's needed, God, I pray you bring healing. Lead us in your paths of righteousness for your name's sake. May you be glorified in our lives. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Amen.